The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, we bring you part one of a two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon about his new Kane Riordan novel, Endangered Species. The interview was conducted by Sean Patrick Hazlett. Let's take a listen. Welcome to Bain Free Radio Hour. I'm here with Dr. Charles E. Gannon. Dr. Gannon, Chuck, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sean. That's always a blast to see you. So we're going to talk about endangered species, which came out as of this recording about a month or so ago. Mm -hmm. Correct. All right. So can you give the audience a brief summary of where we left off with uh, uh, with Kane Reardon? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in book five, and it's been it's been a very long uh, it's been a, a, a very long interval. It's uh, book five came out in 2019. Um, that was in the day when a book like that could actually still be a Nebula nominee, um, and uh, <laughs> it uh, it's it our, our our heroes are left uh, essentially in uh, around a planet where they after a misshift that misshift uh, should have sprayed them out as undifferentiated subatomic particles in some deep space, but mm -hmm. it didn't. They came out intact. Then they discover that they are near a star. And then when they realize there's a double shadow on the spaceship, they take a look and they discover that they are in, came out probably within about 10 or 15 planetary radiuses of a planet with oceans on it. And as one character, uh, Pandora Veridin says, you know, thank God and Riordan, who's not, who's by no means an, a, a dedicated atheist, but is probably a, uh, is skeptic enough to, to feel that empiricism demands conscientious agnosticism, mm -hmm. uh, basically says, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think this is an act of God um, because they've been finding the, the fifth book really is, it takes us from you know, the first two books are called The Contact and The Conflict Arc, and that's exactly mm -hmm. what goes on. In the first book, you have kind of skullduggery, first meeting, first contact with uh, with what's called the Accord. There are not that many races. There are five or six, depending on how you count them. And, um, and, they, uh, and in the process of that, Cain, as a sort of representative, as uh, at first somewhat by chance, but afterwards... Um, he he gets the job of being first contact because no one else has done it. They didn't exactly have courses in it, and right. they probably wouldn't have been very good. Uh, but he brought back results uh, through atypical methods. It would not have been what other people guessed. Um, and so that goes on for the first two books. The second book is, of course, the invasion of Earth. But is it an invasion if maybe about twenty eight percent of Earth's population actually says no? Come here. Uh, that 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 makes things complicated. Um, and so we have more than the next, the next three, which are raising Cain, Cain's mutiny, and then finally Mark of Cain, which was in 2019, uh, are, they're, they're called the emissary arc because that's what he is. And he mm -hmm. meets in the course of those, we come into contact with all the species of the accord in some enough depth and in enough detail to have an understanding of where they come from, what their motivations are, why they're different, the 
places where they might be the same and um, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of at the end of book five, he has traveled finally to the Dornani Collective. They are the ones who've been around the longest. They have had it is known that they have had interstellar flight for seven thousand years. It is known that they were actually a kind of assistant species to uh, one before them that they refer to mm -hmm. as elders. Then it then then the mists. Then it becomes Ultima Thule and here be dragons or or elders or whatever the case may be. Historically speaking. Um, he comes across a variety of unusual, and, and the other thing is that they, this is a, they're not an empire, but they're breaking down. Uh, they are, they're mm -hmm. sort of decaying um, for a variety of reasons, um, some of which get into the dangers of virtuality. I won't say social media, but certainly uh, uh, one of the problems the, the Dornani have is that an increasingly smaller number of them actually want to go and go out and see the world and experience it. They would rather mm -hmm. do it from the comfort of virtue. Um, and so he gets almost no help trying to find his, um, the, the, the mother of his son, Connor. And uh, this takes him to and beyond the Dornani borders. And it turns out that he and his friends are probably going to be sold to the Kator uh, for any one of a number of conceivable reasons. They take the ship, mm -hmm. that's what leads to the misshift and they have, therefore, they have sort of gone to the edge of known space. One of the things in the course of this, though, is that for some reason, we get hints of it, the Dornani, although they have interstellar capability for 7,000 years and could have gone very far, they don't go past 450 light years. That, as a matter of fact, physically, they've never gone past 200. They have sent probes out to 450. And to put it in, in the most concise way I can think of, um, they feel fairly certain that at that range, there is no bear to poke. But beyond that range, you might hit something furry. So they have constrained themselves. Whether that is wise, whether that is, is you know, a millennia of compounded anxiety, no one knows. But we are now on a planet which is standing a whole bunch of expectations and thoughts about what what the known limits of science are on their on right on its head and it's right there at the end of the fifth book that they should not have survived that misshift but instead they're out near a planet huh so yeah so first of all they once they kind of get outside the planet and they're kind of orbiting it they almost don't even make it to the surface there's a there's a reason they kind of have to go to the surface and it ain't in a ship so how did you come up with, I mean, it's, and it's not just like one thing, it's multiple things that just, that, that let's say go wrong, don't go wrong, but there's a lot of things that uh, Reardon has to manage that uh, it, it, just talk a little bit about how you came up with those complications in writing this thing. You were talking like CMEs and all sorts of nastiness. Well, uh, you know, they say if you want, if you, trouble is the uh, is the wellspring of interesting fiction, whether that's psycho psychodrama and it's troubled minds, or in this case, it's very broadly and you have troubled physicalities, the universe not not cooperating. Um, it was it was it just seemed that that there were a, a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of not, first of all, what they're going to discover is that on this planet, CMEs are nowhere near so, or I should say solar system, are nowhere near so 
<coughs> rare as they are here, comparatively speaking. However, they did happen to, you know, stumble across <laughs> just the wrong moment. They certainly don't, but they can't stay where they are because they're running out of every single consumable, you know, every single volatile, whether that's air, water, and then very soon safety is, uh, is going to be beyond them because they don't have power either. And that is, let's say when you're, when you miss shift for the reasons they did, it takes out a lot of systems. And so they have to use, uh, an expedient, uh, um, without going into many details, but they have to get down to the planet using something that was never intended for that particular purpose. Which is interesting because you require the the crew, literally the crew, right? Yes, right. To, yeah, yeah, to, to adapt and overcome. And to your point, you're talking about physicalities, right? There's the one species that... <laughs> They they really have to adapt and overcome yes. in terms of you yeah. know getting them to the surface. Yeah. So uh, and in terms of we have this planet from space, it looks pretty sparse in terms of what they can yeah. they can see. How did you think? And I also think just the the thought process you went through about where to aim everybody to get them to the right part of the surface I thought was an interesting discussion. And how did you think about that in light of world building in terms of the, the gravity, you know, it's like 0.9 G's and, and there's the factor of the moon that the, the satellite that the planet has. Yes. How did you kind of integrate all these things together as you're, as you're coming up with the story? Well, I, I have to say that um, I find I don't know if it will be a source of, of disappointment, disdain, or interest on the part of listeners to learn that I actually do a lot of by random generation. And I do that in a sense because if I think as a writer, and I, I can't speak for others, I can only speak for myself. If I approach something and say, wow, I would really like a situation that is going to bring these things out regarding these characters. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes that's the other hand, that's the other side. That's the flip side of the coin of things are too conveniently positive and then they're too conveniently negative. And we don't we don't have either that halo or that that rain cloud over us in real life. So one of the things, there are a lot of points where I will just jump in and I will say, okay. And I have a I have a spreadsheet that for a variety of reasons, um distance. Uh, astrographics, these are all very important in, in the series. They are important from transit, military, uh, diplomatic angles. And they are, and they're just so folks, if they're not aware of this, if they're not already readers of the series, the, uh, the stars are placed um, with great precision compared to, given what we know the stars to be. This planet is out where web is just showing us right now but all the others if you were to look at the you know flip to the the first uh the frontest piece of the book and you're going to find mm -hmm. a map there which has all the planets or rather all the solar systems with the uh with the light year ranges between them and if you were then to go back and dig and take a look because if the if the planetary name is in boldface it suggests that the world is either green or at least friendly 
potentially to to biota. Um, you're going to find overwhelmingly that those are going to be G, K7 or above, and probably F8 and lower. Because mm -hmm. when you take a look at it, that's about the insulation and the kind of radiation distribution, which we know is going to be fairly friendly to carbon-based life, because here we are. Um, and so that's, uh, that's, that's part, and this planet came that way. They, I knew what the, the sun was, then I let, the, I let the spreadsheet tell me what it was. Um, I, did I have to tweak it so that they could breathe naturally? Sure. Um, mm. On the other hand, I'll say this, it's obvious from the way we started this discussion that this was not a random event. So it's perhaps not entirely shocking that it's not around the local equivalent of Pluto or Venus. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, it's around a planet that has liquid water, which probably may be even more than air. Although when you get liquid water, likelihood is you're going to have a fair amount of free O2. It's just, there, you know, I can, I can come up with the chemistries which make it unlikely or difficult or they're bad trace elements or things like that. But um, it's perhaps um, not, as, not as wildly fortuitous as it looks for the same reason that it was not luck that had the ship come out whole and here. Um, so once I have that, then I just, there, there's actually some, there are a bunch of both scientific and in the gaming community, there are things for tectonic generation and things. And I, I just mm -hmm. did that. They chose that map that you will see in the second book, Protected Species. Now you have a map of the planet. I didn't want to give it away in the first one because it would have been a terrible thing, I think, if you read about their, their desperate attempt to get down in one piece and before you get there, you see a map. It's like, well, okay, I guess we know how this works out. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, so that was a piece of strategically held graphic information. But when you go look at it, you're going to see that um, essentially where they come down, which is a continent by the name of um, Brajgarag, um, offers essentially the longest east-west landing strip on the planet. And that, and it also had, it was cut by rivers and it was in a more temperate zone. The equatorial regions of this planet are punishing, mm -hmm. to put it lightly. There do not seem to be permanent ice caps. There's, and of course they've been here at the point when they're looking at the planet, they've been there 48 hours. So it's not like, oh, let's see what happens during winter. No, uh, I, I don't <laughs> think we have quite that long. Um, so really uh, it's, it's a matter of there, we, you know, they do see something that might be the ruins of a city or maybe even active. They really can't tell it's near a river. It's this long, it's the, like I said, it's a long runway. They can be off by many hundreds of kilometers and they are. Uh, <laughs> as, as one does, as one does, yeah, as, right? As one does. Yeah, I have uh, I have two sons. Uh, one is in the 82nd Airborne and he had his, he had his, uh, he had his little wings. And uh, he is a, he is a lieutenant in a, uh, in a paratroop, you know, paratroop platoon. Got his first, got his platoon not long ago. And my other son who I called, because he has, um, you'll, you'll understand the importance of this. He has a Pathfinder. He's, a, he's an E6 in the first of the 75th. He's a Ranger. They're both Ranger qualified, but one of them is actually a Ranger. Yeah. And so I called him for Pathfinder because Pathfinder is all about loading, and, you know, among other things. And if I'm not mistaken, no, Loadmasters, is that separate? 
There's, yeah, there's yeah. So pathfinders, the, they're the people who mark the who go in right. early and mark the. So the I'm thinking because I right. So he has both of those, um, and uh, and a few others like Mwok and and uh, it's it's a jump master. It's a very long list for a guy who's barely 24. Uh, <laughs> um, Lots of running though. Lots of running. Yeah. Oh yes. Um, so so the bottom line is that that load. As you know, from having read this, I had some expert help on what happens in when the the anticipated torque and rotational rates of things change because of unpredictable changes in equipment. Um, and that's uh, so so I had a lot of fun with that. So there's a lot. Yeah, it's on the one hand. I, I let random generation give me a lot of the environment, give me a lot of the circumstances. Then I just sort of say, what would an intelligent group of people, Kane is not the military, he's by no means a military professional. Uh, absolutely not. He's had to, his experience, and it was quite intentional on my part, is a little bit like the World War II experience. You, you know, it's like, sorry, I know you had other plans, but everyone's off the bleachers now. Um, that was my father. That was my, both of my uncles. Uh, one yeah, was, he feels very like OSS, like, like office of strategic services in a way. Well, he, probably because of the way he problem solves. I mean, he was a yeah. defense analyst, yeah. right? And, but he was yeah. that kind of defense analyst who says, well, I, I've advised in a fair amount inside the, the beltway. And my attitude is if there isn't an E6 or an E7 in the room, then we're really just blowing smoke. Because yeah. those are the people who know what the machinery is going to do, how the people are actually going to behave. They are not the only source of things because they see through their zone and they don't have the, the full picture either. But for them not to be there would be a, a, a and it frequently is the case that they're not there, is a, is a, a, a great misstep, I think, when it comes to these sort of considering these things and for folks who aren't at home who aren't familiar with these these things i'm tossing out e6 and e7 are not the most senior tier of sergeant but they are the most senior tier that you are likely to encounter at at company or platoon level uh they are they are fairly they're not as thinly sprinkled as they used to be um which in part is kind of Heinlein's prediction coming true that you know the uh the the cap troopers of starship troopers as he said would have you know they would have been a journeyman in any other trade and what do you mm -hmm. get you get a lot more specialists you get a lot more warrant officers you get a lot more senior ncos you can track that on from you know the 1930s through to today but um but the so so i let the circumstances dictate it he does look at this he's coming at it from a kind of um I guess you could say a little bit OSS. Uh, it, certainly, Iris is a little bit the the who recruit him is OSS in mind, but it was never something he wanted to do. Which is kind of like a lot of OSS too. A lot of OSS recruited people who were just never thought they'd be doing that. They spoke the right language. They traveled to the right. They knew how to read a map. That you know, strange the qualifications that led to OSS. Sometimes very healthy, I think, because a lot of times these days, I think people aim themselves at a career which means you get a certain type of personality with greater frequency than might be optimal. OSS was drawn from all over the place. Sometimes that was good, sometimes it was bad. 
but um, so I, th I think that's an interesting that's an interesting distinction that that you make. OSS is definitely much more in line with what he does than what we would normally think of now as intelligence services or intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with special forces now and even CIA, it's a very it's actually been very segmented at this point. We have your analysts on the CIA side, and then you have your kind of operatives, paramilitary, which again, it's not that doesn't really fit Kane Reardon, right? It's not he's not like a paramilitary type. He's kind of a mixture of both and back in the day they were taking uh, again this is much too much information but my wife's grandmother was oss and she was like a phd and yep i can't even remember what but they sent her to argentina like there's like weird during world war ii so like lots of weird yep um connections but it was very it was brand new it was i think modeled in the british model but anyway yes I, it I was very much on the british model absolutely um so anyhow that's uh that's how uh that's how they get they without saying how they got down that's that's the, what they're confronting those are the reasons they make the choices they do and they are scattered to hell and gone <laughs> all right now <laughs> and here we, we are have much not not eight percent of the way into the book yeah <laughs> and and they don't even have much time to handle all the contingencies i mean well i don't want to get to, again i don't want to reveal too much, but these sorts of operations are extremely, that's the other thing too. A lot of the stuff that you have in this not only involves knowing how to parachute into, you know, a location, but also there's drogue shoots but and it, stuff from like the astronaut program, right? Yeah. 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 Well, fortunately you have a lot of people here who have experience with that. I mean, they are now at a point where, where the idea of, um, uh, I think they call it uh, low, low, low uh, or low, low, ha. I think they call it low, ha, which is low, low orbit, ha, uh, low orbit, high opening. This <laughs> is what they were shooting. Yeah. Low, ho, low, ho is what you have in the book. Low -ho, yeah. yeah. Um, so you've, you've got people who this is, you know, that's not something we do unless you're a German guy jumping out of a Red Bull capsule, you know, Um but uh, but by this point, it is something that is done. So, mm -hmm. and you've got two people there who've definitely done it, and others who've been close to it. And they actually had to do something not entirely unlike that before in the third book. So you you've got other people who've actually sort of been seasoned into this a little bit. Um, but it is a uh, it is I think the thing about it that also makes it so difficult is that it truly is as I think you're suggesting, Sean, a come as you are party. And uh, and they don't have they don't have a lot they don't they don't have much beyond their birthday suit in a, in to put it one way. Okay, so I want to jump to something else because I want I definitely want to ask you this question. You mentioned earlier in this interview about Kane Reardon having a very strong reputation, strong ability for first contact situations, and what I thought was particularly interesting, without, without giving too much away is explaining true false yes no to a culture that well the, the fact that there are some cultures early cultures that don't have that distinction so i kind of want to take you down that like tell me more about it doesn't have to be in the book but where did you get that are there really cultures that like have to figure that out is that like a process of, of culture formation where they don't uh, have literally don't have yes no 
you know, true, false. I think the, uh, if I know the, uh, you're talking about a scene in the book, which culminates in Drigdo Drigdir, the distinction. Yes, but also between... involves the sun. Like, yes. well, we'll get to that. Cause that's, that's the second part of the question, yeah. but. Um, no, I think the, you know, the bottom line is that any species quite, there's the issue of, can you distinguish a binary opposition? And can you express a binary opposition as, as a, essentially a, um, um, a, a theory, almost in a theoretical concept as a, symbi a symbolic mm -hmm. logic? That's the first thing. That's the first step. Because if you can say it is or it isn't, then in the process of pointing to objects and, and sort of giving a name, you can say, yes, no, that worked, that didn't, I like it, I don't, all sorts of things can blossom out from that. But that is, and I, I gave a lot of thought to this over the years. As a matter of fact, and this goes as, as a writer, as, as, as um, when I, because I have a background in games design. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you're familiar, some of the, re some of the viewers out there are going to be familiar with something called Traveler. It's a role-playing game. Um, it started in 19, and was, was the first science fiction role-playing game really uh, right after D&D. It was an entirely different take on role-playing though. And um, one of the things that I, I thought about was, well, so, so you have these scouts. That was one of the things in, in Traveler. And they go and they make first contact. And I, I dove deep into that because to me, those challenges are, they can be life and death. But mm -hmm. they don't involve, I'm going to come and take your stuff, or I'm going to beat you up because I'm worried you're going to take my stuff, or you're trying to take my stuff. Not that those aren't perfectly good things, and by God, they've certainly driven a lot of history. But when you're talking about first contact, I, I would be a poor person to make, I think, my primary focus to write military science fiction. Military science fiction is what I write in the process of answering the deeper, the much deeper impulse I have, which is whether it's science fiction, whether it's my own life, I want to know what's over the next hill. Mm -hmm. I want to know what's over that next hill. When we do that, if, if our only tool is the one that, you know, Kubrick trots out <laughs> in 2001 Space Odyssey, which is you know, the, 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 the end of the, of the, the, you know, the, I guess it would be, uh, what uh neolithic paleolithic paleolithic probably mm -hmm. uh era uh is the first weapon to the last weapon the 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 first the club that kills an ape throws it up in the air smash cut to orbital nuclear weapon um if that's the only tool you're going over the next hill with your impulse is not to see what's over the next hill it's to grab what's over the next hill i want to see and mm -hmm. so that asked so i was very interested in what that involves. And then you start boiling it down. And the first thing you need is how does a species, particularly intelligent, discriminate between what it, the, the idea, it will move towards this food source, it will not move toward that food source. This is an aversive environment. This is a promising environment. If a species, and now we're talking about total, we're talking about single cell organisms. If they can't do that, mm -hmm. they, won't, they won't reproduce. When you then get to higher levels of sophistication, the ability to signal that becomes increasingly more important because you're not operating in a petri dish anymore. You know, you're not you're not 
Euglena don't make a lot of decisions, you know, <laughs> they just sort right. of be along. But by the time you're at, my God, even a fish, right? And they're pretty, they're, they're pretty basic on the entire chordata, you know, element right. of, of, uh, of the evolutionary tree. Um, by the time you're us or wolves or dolphins, it's all decisions. So for me, the real interesting thing is how do you get, how do you manage to communicate? How do you build a glossary? How do you determine whether somebody finds something aversive or not? You know, all of those things. You need to be able to say yes, no, present or not. You know, and that's what there's a scene in this book where that is very much, very much worked out and, uh, and could go tragically wrong at a number of points. And I have a lot of fun with all the very, very similar beings to us, more so than in most of the other contexts that Cain has had to, to deal with. But it's still possible to get things very wrong. Very, very wrong. And, uh, and they come kind of close. Yeah, I appreciated the the use of the the sun tracing across the yeah, the veritable chariot of Apollo, right? Yeah. You don't yeah. that you mentioned that yeah. in the book, but in trying to see if the, a particular species understands that concept, mm -hmm. which I thought was a really ingenious use of why a demonstration of why Cain is who he is, right? Well, that that is that is his, you know. His, his claim to fame is he is not a polymath in the in the mechanical sense of let's say a da Vinci but Kane is that individual who in the first book uh, you know somebody's saying he's a polymath says, what do you mean he says well if you see this you see you see a hammer but he sees a pendulum bob he sees a doorstop he you know he, he, he tends not to think in pre-codified terms that's an object it has properties what could i use it for and that's generally that sort of is the paradigm and i the term i have for it is paradigmatic thinking um not thinking in terms of this is for that that is for that well yeah that's why they were designed that way but tell me you haven't used something in your house that it wasn't designed for that purpose you know and but people will look at you very oddly when you do you know they uh sorry about that don't know what's going on they will look at you very oddly when you when you use something that uh, that is not uh, in a way for which it was not intended. Um, and he finds absolutely he has no he has no reservations about doing that whatsoever. So that's and that's sort of his that's his his strong suit. That and he he um, he tends to make mistakes once. Doesn't mean that things work out every time after that. It just means that. It probably, you know, there's the there's the mistakes we make, and then there's the fact that crap happens, and you know, you don't get to choose when the crap. Well, happens. there's also, to your point, there's also, again, I don't want to give it away, but there's also an instance where muscle memory actually, it's like the combination of muscle memory with the combination of an alien technology, the Dornani technology, mm -hmm. where it actually sometimes can end up being a mal adaptation right yes. yes so there are a lot of instances like that where you know kind of kane puts people in the you no know, rightly puts people in a situation where they're using stuff that wasn't designed to be that way but it kind of works mm -hmm. almost 100 percent, right 
but there are other things that were a maladaptation kind of the lost soldiers that come in do something when they're in that heat of the moment and they rely on that muscle memory and sometimes it can get you killed and and one of the things about his own as you're saying regarding the uh the fact that he has spent time in virtua and there's it's a very brief passage but he says i'm worried i'm going to get somebody killed and they say why he says i i in i spent you know two years equivalent and i was i had a different body by that time i don't have that muscle mass that i have and everything is just a little bit off right now so there are one of the things that i i kind of revel in pursuing the law of unintended consequences mm -hmm. that the things we do which may have a lot of benefits but you may find places where they are not beneficial ultimately and um so I'm uh, so, so I have fun with that in this book more than a couple of cases. Now going back to planet building, so you mentioned that you like to randomize some of the inputs, but not all of them. And what I found for many creators and writers that it sometimes enforce it kind of enforces a sort of not only discipline but also forces them to be much more creative right because by forcing a constraint you have to find alternative ways to for lack of a better word get get to what you want or get to where you want the story to go and sometimes the environment has a vote the characters have a vote and it you know if you're trying to achieve some semblance of verisimilitude which you clearly are in this in this series it forces you to come up with more creative solutions. Have you had that experience with this or oh, is that exactly. why you do it? Or is that just a byproduct? No, no, it's, it's absolutely one of the reasons why I do it. And it, it's both because I think, um, it, it, Oh, look what I found here. You know, it will answer our problems. No, no, I, I haven't, I haven't been in that place a lot in my life. So I'm not interested in writing about it. Uh, right. I, and I think most of us relate to the fact that that a lot of our life is a come as you are party. You know, there's a lot that you plan for and it works out. Um, sometimes luck is on your side. Sometimes it isn't. And there's no telling when that's going to be. But I but the verisimilitude you're talking about is the fact that you don't constantly get gimmies. Um, right. You also don't constantly get I, I, I think the character that is being tortured through one implausible sort of loss after another is is at least as annoying as the one who's kind of has a halo around them and everything sort of just falls into their lap um organisms tend to survive a little bit because of luck but what is it what is it it was it um i think it was was it marcus aurelius who said that um luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very meaningful to me. Um, and that is, in a sense, I think, uh, I, you know, while I have, I am of zero opinion regarding the, the, hein, the Heinlein, the man, the Heinlein man, right? The always prepared and things like that. I, you know, I think the list, I think everybody's like making that like it's a, it's a sort of, yes, I must be able to, to butcher that hog and, you know, all the <laughs> things that he lined up. And I, I always want to say, guys, gals, that's, that's, he's just making a point, you know, <laughs> it could be different things. 
Um, this is not the holy handbook of Heinlein. That's not what you're looking at here. Um, but this is a series that deals with the notion that, that if you're prepared, you stand a better chance. And yet it doesn't always save you. Just as sometimes, you know, what is it? And this, this shows up in the second book of this dyad. You know, it's uh, somebody, somebody says to something to the effect, well, you know, you're a fool and you're a drunkard. So God loves you twice. Because there's that saying, right? Um, which goes back to, I think, Samuel Johnson and even before. Um, but, uh, but it is very intentional that, that, I, that randomization is there both to create the sense of verisimilitude down to that sort of gut level that I think readers can tell. You know, it's like, well, this feels kind of natural. Well, it is. And, uh, and if I give myself a problem I can't solve, uh, then that becomes, in a sense, more interesting in a lot of ways. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, for instance, you say they almost always work right. They do, but that's in this case, particularly, it's because Kane, Kane there are leaders who cannot give up control. And as a result, they get less than optimal outcomes. And Kane is the first guy to say, I'm not the expert here. You know, I, can, I might be able to orchestrate the pieces, but I do not, I can't play the, I can't play any of these instruments, but I might be able to make sure that the, the French horns don't ride under the oboes or something like that, you know? Right. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what he brings to this because the reason they get down to the planet at all and survive really when you get down to it he is his his contributions are more strategic and and essentially broad knowledge based not not the sort of nitty-gritty in the moment sort of stuff that's not his strong suit so so yeah he's uh but he knows he knows talent when he sees it and he doesn't well, it would almost limit him if he if he knew too much about any particular thing because he wouldn't be able to find this um pair you know this he wouldn't have this ability to take different tools and use them in completely yeah. uh, novel ways that people, most people wouldn't even consider. Yeah. Now, in terms of the going back to world building again, you get to this world, it is extremely like searing and sparse and you have a civilization with lots of not civilization, but a, a world with lots of lichen. Uh, lots is probably overstating it but bit of lichen here and there yes lichen yeah yeah yeah, lichen here and there but uh there are boats but the boats are not composed of wood mm -hmm. so as you're thinking about this world building and you kind of put yourself on this very harsh landscape with water they have water they have oxygen so yay, yay them <laughs> the civilization that is there, I shouldn't say develops there, uh, but is there that they find has had to evol evolve or, or adapt. Adapt is a better word to their situation. So how did you come up with all that? <laughs> like, just, did you, was that one of those places where you thought, oh crap, I have to find a way to have boats. What do they have a lot oh, of? Oh no, actually, if you take a look at the... Um... Uh, the es the Eskimo, they make very large boats called umiaks, and the umiaks are like 10, 12 person boats, and they are all hide and bone. Uh, 
um, on on this on this planet also there are certain things that that work i didn't just take things away mm-hmm. i also started thinking about what would what would people be good on a planet with so few resources and one of the things i came up with is that they would probably those who those who understand so fire is very difficult to make um as a matter of fact, the carbon cycle is uh, is very difficult to get inside of productively mm-hmm. when, you, when you think of it. Um, there are, you know, is it convenient that the lichen is edible that they grow? Or is it that that's the only thing that could grow and was chosen to grow? Because if if it's hard to grow anything, you it's got to be something that you can eat, even more important than than that you can make tools out of because bone is tool, mm-hmm. stone is tool. Um, and they'll know a bunch of things. Uh, one of the things that there is, there are a variety of species here which do not seem to follow or come out of the same evolutionary track at all. I think that's a, I think that's a fair and, and yet not total spoiler way of, of talking about it. But one of the things that they do is they leverage chemicals. They, they know mm-hmm. they have a way, I mean, we have ways on this planet to soften bone and work bone and, and then harden it again. But for us, that's a kind of, usually that gets outplaced by wood or trade items or things like that. On this mm-hmm. planet, that becomes a much more sort of fixed, important um, uh, focus. Of, it is as important to their civilization as tanning was to, to our I guess you can say from from Neolithic all the way through, well, Paleolithic at least, um, all the way through to to probably 1700s, 1800s. It was still vastly important. Um, so they understand that, and they mm-hmm. when you, the the interesting thing about having less to work with is you drill down into everything you can leach from a substance, and um, and and and. I'm thinking a lot of people are going to uh, are going to there's a there's a trade good of course having to do with camphor uh, that uh, that was that was an interesting thing to stumble across and and it is it's not strange that Kane knows about it because that was something he ran into in the course of being in virtual he mm-hmm. he didn't know exactly what it was but he was pretty sure about it and um, and it is this ability on the part of not Cain, but on the part of people on this planet over thousands of years, they, they have sort of made a mental catalog of all the ways they can leverage things that are replenishable in their environment to achieve ends. Um, one of the reasons that bronze is present isn't that they don't have access to metals. There's, there's actually a lot of fairly hard steel left around. They can't work it. They can't get the temperatures. They and and even, you know, the thing is, they say, oh, you can build the sovereign, and you could. If your primary fuel source is dung, right? You're you're <laughs> just not generating the the sort of calories output that you need. They don't care what it looks like. They can do it, but they it is isn't a fantastically expensive process. So what do they deal with? They deal with metals that don't require the high the high working temperatures. Um, and actually because of what, what exists through the ages, the softer metals were less prevalent at the time that things all went to hell. So the, the metal that's mostly around them, they can't work. And the other stuff, which would be a lot easier to work is no longer in the ground. 
and they and and has been probably you know after well it's been it's been sucked out of every place they can find it they use it they they turn it into tools what's left you know so but the fact that you have these individuals dropping out of the sky on this planet is uh is a um this is an inflection point because they are bringing certain Mm -hmm. kinds of knowledge with them which have which may have been here at one time they're not here anymore but they are looking at this world through you know through what do they say the you know bring the man from mars to see earth the, the woman from mars to see earth correctly well they literally fell out of the sky and they start with no preconceived notions um well that's wrong they start with not preconceived notions they they start they see things that are similar and they make assumptions which for mm-hmm. anybody who's anybody who's learned a language that is fairly close to your own that's more dangerous you 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 are more likely to make mistakes and not know you made them than a, a language that is fantastically different from your own you know if you consider all i think they're called in french false friends is the is the term for mm-hmm. words that sound very similar but they are not the same and they and they carry different ideal you know idiomatic weights and things like that so they that's a cultural thing as well and um you know and it's easy to overlook those things and they they do on a number of occasions which i also had a lot of uh, fun with in this so and now we bring you our audiobook serialization of tinker by win spencer Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Chapter 3 Accidental Lolita It wasn't until Maynard's armored limo rolled away that Tinker realized she had just stranded herself downtown. She had taken her headset off in the trailer, and thus Windwolf had carried her into the hospice without it. Pay telephones had started disappearing from Earth cities at the turn of the century, as cell phones eliminated the need for them. Luckily, Pittsburgh had moved to Elfholm before the last wave of dismantling payphones. Supposedly to maintain the lines of communication between shutdown and startup, the governments of Earth heavily subsidized Pittsburgh's phone system. Thus, Tinker was able to find a phone, and with her lone rumpled dollar changed into dimes at the Okonomiyaki cart, could afford ten calls. The afternoon sun had heated the plastic of the payphone to nearly blistering. Tinker winced at the pain it lanced through her newly healed hand, and juggled the hot receiver around while she called Oil Can. He didn't pick up, which was odd. She tried his home number, but he wasn't at his condo. She didn't bother leaving a message. Most likely by the time he checked his home machine, she would be someplace other than Market Square. 
Oil Can wasn't at the scrapyard either. Because she'd yanked her workshop to Fairy Windwolf around, her office AI was offline at the scrapyard. After a dozen rings, she hung up and called her loft. Her home AI Skippy answered. Hello, this is Tinker's residence. Tinker isn't in. Please leave an audio message, video clip, or data file. It's me. Let me have the audio messages. She used her voice code. Tesla titillates treacle. There were 67 calls, Skippy reported, and started into replaying the messages. Message one. 67? Who the hell is all calling me? Tinker frowned as Nathan's voice came on. I was wondering what happened after I left, Nathan said. Call me. I'm worried about you. Skippy timestamped the message from the morning of shutdown and gave the number. She recognized it as the payphone at the McKee's Rocks gas station. Nathan might have stopped there after checking the scrapyard. She made a mental note to call him. Message two, Skippy cued into the next call, which was from Oil Can. Hey, I got gas for the shop, dragged down a load of fresh batteries, and even managed to snag you a new clutch system for your bike. I swung past again to pick you up, but you had gone already. I'm heading out to buy food now. I don't know about you, but all I have in my cupboard is instant oatmeal and brown sugar. I'll see you tonight at Lane's. Lane's? Skippy timestamped the call at two hours earlier, meaning Oil Can must have been on Maynard's heels in his attempt to pick her up at the hospice. The phone number was a South Hills number, so Oil Can must have gone straight out to the food warehouses. There are no more audio messages, Skippy reported. Wait, what about the other 65 calls? No other messages were left. The phone company's automated system hijacked the connection and demanded more money. Tinker fed two of her dimes into the coin slot. Satisfied, the phone company's AI released the line. Give me a report on all calls. Nathan's was indecently early, meaning he had probably left it as he came off shift. The second call hit at the ungodly time of 5.15 a.m. The third was at 5.30 a.m., and then the calls settled into an every-half-hour event. The first 38 originated from an Earth phone number with an area code that she didn't recognize and came with no ID flag. At midnight, when Pittsburgh returned to Elf Home, the Earth phone number dropped off the list. At 6 the next morning, the calls started again. Only this time the phone numbers were all local payphones at systematic half-hour intervals. They moved in a widening circle around the scrapyard, starting at the gas station on the corner. She had just missed the most recent call. Just out of curiosity, she had Skippy compare call times for all calls, Earth-based and local. All of them listened to the full outgoing message, as if checking to make sure nothing had been changed. The phone company's automated system hijacked the line again, demanding more money if she was going to stay on. She hung up instead, not sure what to make of the mysterious phone calls. Obviously someone, apparently from Earth, was looking for her. But who? Perhaps Lane knew, as all of Tinker's contacts with Earth came through the xenobiologist. Tinker used her fifth dime to call the xenobiologist and got Lane's AI. It's Tinker she told Lane's simple, unnamed AI. Tinker, Lane's recorded voice came on. Oil can called early this morning. 
He said there's nothing to eat out at your place. We're doing the traditional summer startup cookout here at the observatory. I'm probably outside, so just come on up. You can spend the night if you want. Tinker's mouth drooled at the thought. Huge and crowded as Earth was, the scientific community of Earth remained small enough that the incoming scientists knew to bring food for a social gathering, each trying to outdo the rest. Since Pittsburgh pulled in people from all across Earth, the cookout was held the day after startup, so those coming in at the last minute wouldn't miss out on the festivities. Getting to the observatory, however, might be tricky. Maybe she should have taken Maynard up on the offer of a ride. While South Hills still had a light rail public transportation system, only taxis went to Observatory Hill. She now had only five dimes to her name. She considered her dimes, then dropped one into the coin slot and called Nathan. He picked up on the first ring. Chernowski. It's Tinker. Tink? What happened after I left? Where have you been? Are you okay? Where are you? I, um... She paused, not sure which question to answer first. The last two days' events seemed impossible to explain. I'm fine. I'm downtown. Market Square? I'm kind of stuck. I need a ride out to the observatory. I'm going to crash with Lane tonight. I'll be right there. Which was what she had hoped he would say. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkiewicz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon and Sean Patrick Hazlett, and be sure to tune in next week to hear part two of the interview. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.